Remember one case where the person who answered the end was actually a serial killer wanted for six murders. True crime network. His victims. Oh my god. Like the worst kind of dinner date. This is bizarre murders. the local authorities got to him before he made we're doing a binge fest of true crime because everybody in America is too gullible. Martha and Ron finally meet in person. About six months later, they're hitched. Sick and twisted people. Their marriage is a match made in heaven. Or so Ron they think. is the love of Martha's life. The happy couple spend all their days together. <laughs> But over time, Ron retreats from Martha, preferring to spend his time alone with his what? collection of sports memorabilia. <laughs> Ron becomes obsessed with money and the value of his collection. Martha's concerned. This is not the man she married, and a far cry from Martha's own upbeat personality. After seven years, the marriage develops an itch that needs scratching. Ron's withdrawal from Martha and the world, as well as his growing obsession with his sports collection, red flags. And it seems like we've got an inner demon situation going on here. Ron's fixation with money is obsessive. Here's a tip, Trista's tips and tricks. Do a background search on all the people you date. He resents that his wife brings in more money than he does. And Ron becomes paranoid of losing all his belongings. Oh, and dinner's gonna be ready around 6 30. Clean hands off. It's mine. It's a lot more expensive than this costume jewelry, I'll tell you that. It's a ball, Ron. This is the most expensive ball you'll ever have in your hands. It's a ball. Just don't dick. get it. Divorce him. Dumbass. I don't know. I don't know what to do. He spends all of his time in the basement, finally with his sports stuff. He's always angry. Well, when he's angry, what do you mean? Is he verbally abusive? Or... Yeah. Martha confines to a close friend, Barbara, that Ron is chronically angry, and always blaming everyone but himself for his problems. But I do get scared. She thinks it could have something to do with his time in the military. I don't know what to do. It's not uncommon for war veterans, and I've known some, to suffer from depression and anxiety. These days, we have a name for it. PTSD. And it's an ugly... <laughs> Could Ron's wartime trauma up with him? Although he doesn't like to discuss the war, he tells Martha that he saw serious combat when he was in country with special ops. Serious combat with special ops? Oh, no, no. The official record states that Ron spent the war tied to a desk. I'd say someone's feeling a little inadequate because he didn't see any action at all. start to look up for Ron when he lands his dream job as manager of Adult Zone, a chain of porno stores in Spokane. Believe it or not, Ron himself has no interest in porn. He's just reading the articles. 
Actually, what he's really interested in is the money. It's a well-paid gig with benefits and stability, and he doesn't have to answer to anybody. He's the boss, at least when it came to cleaning up. And that's what Ron really wanted to do, clean up. Over the following 10 months, as his paranoia and rage continued to grow, his new career at the porno store brings Ron into contact with some nasty characters. Hey, man. Hey, it's, uh, it's close. We're close. Jerry, here for the job. Jerry, One of his employees, Jerry, is a real sleazy dude with a rap sheet a mile long. Jerry also has a mean and expensive appetite for hard drugs. Cocaine, speed, crack, you name it. And he's always broke. Ron doesn't have a criminal record or anything, but he and Jerry become fast friends. Both are ex-military. Both resent the world and see themselves as victims, though. Ron and Jerry bond over shared grievances, both real and imagined. The new job only fuels Ron's obsession with money. He lies to Martha about the amounts he's making and stockpiles thousands in the den without knowledge. In Ron's collapsing psyche, he's the victim. That's not uncommon. Everybody's out to get him. He's got to defend himself. He's got to prepare for the worst. He's got to prepare for Armageddon. If you're looking for a Medicare plan, it helps. So, yeah, we're watching Bizarre Murders just because Trump is a mass murderer and y'all don't even recognize that six months later. Martha's a compassionate person and can take a lot. She's a nurse, after all. But she's starting to worry about her safety. old, Mr. Porn Shop is forced to move back home with his father. Sure, you can call it a dream life, but things aren't looking up for a while. And then, things go from bad to worse for Ron. Without warning or explanation, he loses his job at Adult Zone. What do you have to do to get fired from a porn store? Steal thousands of dollars? Can you come over? Then Ron finally catches a break. Like an eager puppy begging for a scrap of food, Ron is hopeful that Martha has seen the error of her ways, realized she can't live without him, and wants to patch things back up. Hi. Hey. Hey, Bobby Flower. Was going to make up for how you've treated me? Yeah. But then Martha drops the bomb. It's over, Ron. I want to go A divorce means that Ron will lose half of the house, his share of Martha's pension and benefits, and all the cash is slashing out of the Ron's not the kind of guy to go down without a fight. He's about to sit back and lose half of the house, all of Martha's money, 
money that, as far as he's concerned, is owed to him. No way. Not a chance. He wants revenge. Lucky for Ron, he knows just the kind of girl who can help him solve his problem. Uh, one end of the picture. Permanently. Jerry's desperate for cash to fuel his out-of-control drug addiction and clear his debts. It doesn't take him long to decide. I'll give you half now, and half later. <laughs> deal, deal. And don't use the knife. No knife. You gotta be creative about this, Jerry. Acting like they actually know what they're doing, Ron and Jerry weigh the pros and cons of which weapon to use. With the drill! And what stage? Uh, home repair accident. All That's right, no drip, no drill. Strangle. Jerry, that, that's the time my mom gave me. Well, the neighbors are gonna hear. A handgun is the better weapon to use for a guaranteed kill because a hammer can be a messy affair, and messy equals evidence. But a handgun makes an incredibly loud sound unless you have a silencer, and these idiots don't. And two-thirds of all murders in the U.S. are done with a gun. One thing's for sure, though, if you're debating this topic, you're either the police or a cold-blooded maniac. All the way back, all the way. After much deliberation, Jerry decides to use a hammer. A silent blow or two to Martha's head should do the trick. To throw off the police, they decide to make it look like a burglary going sideways. They'll move around some of Ron's sports memorabilia as though that's what the police were Pure genius. Flip it. What are you doing? It's just a ball. You're just like her. If the idea is to make the crime look like a robbery for a sports collection, unless you know Jay Simpson, this is going to be a bit of a stretch. As soon as you open the door, make the key. Triggers the alarm. You have 30 seconds to put the code in. Four, five, six, number seven. What is it? Four, five, eight. Oh, Jesus, Jerry, what comes after five? seem to be in the logic here at all. Maybe, maybe that's just my 25 years in the FBI talking. I don't We ask real customers to tell us what <laughs> Anyway, so Americans are too gullible. And, uh, obviously. Oh, shoot, I just noticed. Broken shell. Anyway, um, yeah, y'all are too gullible and naive. And maybe too kind that you can't. Imagine somebody who is a malignant, narcissistic psychopath. And as Oxford Psychology Tutor, I give back to my community. And I have a duty to warn. Like all the AMA, you know, there are many. There's a huge group of mental health professionals 
who have come forward to warn the public and y'all didn't listen so but true crime is very popular right extremely popular so I'm doing a binge fest on that at present and I will be covering it until I lose interest basically so So welcome back to the Trista for Governator show. I do daily ASMRs to hashtag Heal America with uh, nature and, and farmyard noises a lot of the time. And I cover all the pro-democracy podcasts like Midas Touch, Legal AF, Glenn Kirshner, because justice matters. And other awesome podcasts. Mary Trump, Lincoln Project. So please write me in. Oh, here we go. Okay, Ron. What do I have to do? Ron thinks he's clever, which is wonderful for law enforcement. He calls his soon-to-be ex-wife to establish an alibi. Now he waits in a cheap hotel for his degenerate friend Jerry to bludgeon Martha to death with his hand. That's a couple of guys. After a twelve hour shift, a hammer to the head should be a death blow.
It's a brutal <laughs> battle to the death. <laughs> Doing with their hands, eh? Jerry obviously didn't think that little old Martha would be a match for him. He was wrong. Dead wrong. She was much more than a match for him. Martha has turned the tables on the attacker. And killed him with her bare hands. Battered and bloody. Martha runs to her neighbor and calls the police. The stress for a paranoic like Ron is immense. I mean, what could be taking Jerry so long? He should have called hours ago. Ron is most definitely losing his mind at this point. At least what mind he has left. Killed him with a pair of hands. Detective wow. Maxwell is the investigator assigned to the case. <laughs> Thanks to Jerry's total lack of intelligence, investigators easily identify him at the scene. That's so Jerry. After 25 years in the FBI, let me give you a pro tip. Don't bring your wallet to the scene of the crime. <laughs> Investigators then discover a note in Martha's house left by Ron. The note is obviously meant to bolster his alibi, but the investigators were made simply more suspicious. In a case like this, where there's an estranged spouse, they're an automatic suspect. In fact, statistically, almost half of all women who are murdered in America are killed by people they know, usually a current or former boyfriend or spouse. Yeah. Hear that? Ladies, hear that, ladies? Wake up. Martha's friend Barbara gets a call from Ron. Hello? Hi, hi, Barbara. I, uh, I just saw Martha's house on the news. Is everything okay? Are you having hurt? She's attacked. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Is she all right? She's knocked up, but she's okay. And she's going to go through. Uh, did, did they know who, uh, who attacked her? What, what happened to her? Oh, my God. Once Ron gets over the shock and awe that Martha survived the attack, he's desperate to track her down. He calls the hospital, but the investigators tell Martha and the staff to conceal her whereabouts and give Ron nothing. Jerry, you idiot! Jerry! Four days after the attack, Martha, having recovered remarkably quickly from the injuries inflicted upon her by her attacker, Jerry, is released from the hospital. making this up. It, it turns out that in Jerry's backpack was an envelope with a couple of Oh yeah. He also left a daybook entry with Call Rod on it. It's the crucial clue in the case. It connects Jerry directly to Rod. You remember what I said about bringing personal belongings to the crime scene? Honestly, I don't think Jerry could have been any more stupid if he tried. If you think you can't get high-speed internet where you live, well, you can with HughesNet, America's number one choice for satellite internet. 
So, yeah, nobody's even talking about uh, Trump as a mass murderer having killed a million people. He fucking killed a million people, you idiots. Did nothing. The problem is he's committed so many crimes, it's hard to keep up with him. Like every single day. He's criming. He gets off on criming. So just get it through your minds that even though you're a good person and you cannot conceive of somebody who would be so, so freaking evil, study mass murder, study serial murder, study killers. Because he's not only definitely capable of the worst crimes against humanity, for example, but uh, he has no compunction he gets off on it okay so wake the F up America and also everybody's stressed out so it's understandable it's understandable and he's the worst criminal in human history so Not your fault. But y'all need to be fucking aware. Need to wake the F up. And be aware that yes, there are definitely people in the world, even politicians, even former hosts of reality TV shows that they can be so fucking evil that the only way to the only way to deal with them is is, uh, throw them in jail bare minimum and also keep your eyes on the prize America Our number one priority should be right now to (coughs) make sure they cannot run for office ever again. (coughs) They track down his son, Mike, who tells them he's actually been in touch with his father. He mentioned that he's worried because the last time they were together, Mike discovered a revolver hidden in his father's drawer. The investigators are up against the clock. Mike's <laughs> desperate, and he's volatile, and he's paranoid. These are very bad things that, in my experience, make him more than suspect. He's a high-risk suspect. The investigators convince Ron's son, Mike, to call his father to coax him back to Spokane without revealing that he's wanted for questioning. <laughs> Once Ron returns to town, the police take him into custody and question him about his alibi. What I meant to say is... <laughs> uh, 
Thursday. Thursday evening. It was uh, Wednesday night. Okay, here's criminal 101. If you're going to create an alibi, you gotta stick with one version of what happened. Ron just can't keep his story straight and it becomes obvious that he's making it up as he's going along. He's lying through his teeth. Ron repeatedly gets his timeline mixed up, confusing Tuesday from Wednesday, Wednesday for Friday. The discrepancies in his story pose enough grounds for the investigators to arrest him. Ron is charged with attempted murder and conspiracy. Hoping for a lighter sentence, he pleads guilty and holds a trial. The court gives him 15 years. Martha's actions are considered justifiable as self-defense, duh, and she isn't charged with killing Jerry. With Ron behind bars, Martha officially divorces him. She now goes by Martha Smith. The moral of the story is, good for don't you, mess Martha. with nurses. They're good people who want to help you. But if you want to kill them, you better be tougher than you think they are because they'll kick your sorry ass. Oh, and one other thing. If you plan on being a low-life criminal, don't bring your ID to the crime scene. Okay? Ever. Also, change the locks. Change the security codes after you break up. Bizarre. Shockingly true. Bizarre murders. Next. So we're watching a binge fest of True Crime Network so that y'all get some critical thinking skills about murderers and psychopaths like Trump. Lincoln, Nebraska, 2006. Cecilia is a 21-year-old high school dropout. She's had some bad luck in the past, but she's planning a new beginning that has all the right stuff to succeed. Cecilia's close friend since high school. He knows what she's been through, and through it all, he's been there for her. <laughs> this new apartment is the fresh start Cecilia needs. Hi, guys. <laughs> all right, I'm the two. I'm a uh, new neighbor. Cecilia. Cecilia. Nice touch. 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 Nice touch.
Cecilia's ex-boyfriend makes a surprise appearance. You get out. He's the reason she needs a fresh start. You talk. That's what you get. No, what are you doing here? Cecilia was 16 when she met Dylan. Your typical bad boy. You're supposed to be with me. What are you doing? Is that bothering you? No, no, he's not. You bother me, bro. Soon she was hanging out with the wrong crowd, skipping classes, and eventually she dropped out of school. This is the park you went now? Is that what's up? They moved in together. You need to get out of here. Who is that? None of your business. It's been five years since Cecilia made that mistake. And try as she may, it seems to be following her. At the FBI, we take it very seriously that one in four women in the United States have been the victim of severe physical violence. Even worse, one in three women who is a victim of homicide was murdered by her current or former partner. Dylan, you gotta go. Let's just have a talk. I'm gonna call the cops, okay? Cops for girl. I'm going to call the police, so go! what we call a cycle of abuse. More often than not, women in her situation won't call the police. And usually, that ends badly. Despite the fiasco on her first day in her new apartment, Cecilia is still determined to put it all behind her. Wait, I just want to say thank you. Hey, no problem. <laughs> And she has willing help close by from her very friendly new neighbor, Mateo. Which doesn't thrill Judd. In the days that follow, Cecilia settles into her new digs. Cecilia. Independence suits her well. I need an ambulance. My friend's been attacked. The worst case scenario is finding a friend or family member has been murdered. I don't wish it on anybody. But if it happens, the most important thing to do is to call 911 and please don't disturb the crime scene. There's only one way in and one way out of this bathroom, and it's a bottleneck for evidence. Using specialized tools, investigators scour the crime scene, uncovering evidence that is present but invisible to the naked eye. The best thing you can find at a crime scene is the proverbial smoking gun. But a piece of evidence left behind by the killer that ties them directly to the crime, it's fingerprints, DNA, blood, those are all crucial. Jackpot. Detectives note that these prints are barefoot and that the smears appear to be from a cleaning attempt. Fingerprints have all sorts of unique loops, swirls, and ridges, and they can be used to identify crooks. 
You know, your feet have the exact same thing. Either way, cops love prints. <laughs> Detectives find extensive blood spray on both the walls around the tub and on the floor. This tells me she was alive at the time her throat was cut because the spray is caused by the high pressure of her blood, which isn't there if you're not alive. The body was found partially clothed and placed in the tub. This tells me that there was probably an assault and likely the killer wanted to humiliate the victim. Every bit of evidence tells a story and these are adding up. Blood in the hallway, on the counter, in the bathroom, a sloppy murder scene, which means it wasn't planned, and of course the random hot dog buns. This is all trending towards a crime of passion. What it tells me is that we're looking for a killer that knew Cecilia. Right away, with that information, the playing field of suspects is really gonna narrow. Hi, my name Hi. is Sam Davis. Two weeks after breaking away from her abusive boyfriend and moving into her own apartment, Cecilia is found murdered in her bathtub. Police know that Cecilia struggled with her attacker. She likely yelled. So they turn to people who live close by. Were you aware that your neighbor Cecilia was murdered on the 15th? Oh my god, no. Did you know Cecilia? I met her one time. She moved in. She moved in. But the the couple had heard anything like screaming or signs of a struggle. We were we were all sleeping. Yeah. A dead end. Uh, actually, there was um, her, 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 her boyfriend, yeah, her ex-boyfriend Dylan, um, I think that's what his name, there was, uh, the day she moved in, he actually um, showed up and started arguing with her and actually punched one of her friends in the stomach. After hearing about Dylan's altercation with Judd, the detective leaves with both Judd and Dylan on his list of suspects. Should have called the cops, lady. Forensic evidence of blood sets the date of the murder as November 13th, sometime between 9 p.m. Just as tips and tricks, press charges. His good friend Judd, who called 911, is one of the suspects. Mateo was also a person of interest because he had access to the victim. But with his history of violence against Cecilia, Dylan is the prime suspect. How well did you know Cecilia? Dylan fits the profile and is certainly guilty of a lot. Where were you on the night of the 15th? Between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. I was out with friends. These two girls I know from college. While police attempt to corroborate Dylan's story, they bring Mateo in for further questioning. What happened during the altercation of fishing with Dylan? This guy is like really violent, aggressive. He's yelling, screaming. He ends up punching Judd in the stomach and runs off. If you don't mind, you'd like to get my fingerprints. Why? I barely knew I did this once. With no clear killer emerging, the police also want to hear more details from Judd. Tell me about the day that you went by Cecilia's house. Made the phone call. I got really worried that she wasn't answering my call. Jeez, it's Judd. It's like the 20th message I've left you. Where are you? 
charges when he punched her friends that's assault and he got away with it so he was emboldened and fucking killed her so press charges idiots 
Police confront him with the matching footprint evidence. Obviously shaken, he gives detectives a complete flip-flop of his original story. Okay, look, man. I was with Cecilia the night before she died. Mateo claims that he and Cecilia have been having a bombshell affair for the past couple of weeks. That started right after she moved in. That night, we had a couple drinks. Made out a little bit. And then I left to swear I didn't kill her. The next morning, I snuck over to her place uh, to surprise her. Cecilia! Hey, Cecilia! He had visited for another morning tryst when he found her dead in the tub. Pants. Uh, there was blood everywhere. So I ran home, scared. Well, I realized I left bloody footprints in the hole. So I ran back and cleaned them up. I was just scared, but I didn't kill him. He claims that's how his prints got in the hallway. So why didn't you report the body? It's my wife, man. I didn't want my wife to find out about the affair. One more shoe drops in Mateo's perimeter. What can you tell me about this? A long time ago, I'm a person. They found that he has a domestic abuse conviction against him, but it was in another state, which is how it was missed on the routine check. And this is part of the reason why I didn't, because I knew I would be suspects. Game changer, this is a big deal, because if you've got one conviction for violence against a spouse, you've probably done it a lot before it got bad enough to have your wife turn you in. This guy has a proven violent temper and he's not afraid to take that out on women. This one didn't kill her. Police think they're looking at their guy, but they don't have enough conclusive evidence to lay a charge that will stick. They're forced to let him go, but under the order that he's not to leave town. Instinct is telling me this is the guy. Here's the hitch, and it's a big one. Just because they have his footprint doesn't mean they have him for committing murder. He hardly knew her. Why would he kill her? This guy could skate on reasonable doubt. This one footprint only places him at the scene of the crime. They need to place him in that bathroom at the time of the crime. The detective combs over the evidence again, but this time with nothing but Mateo as their crime suspect. While reassessing crime scene photos, he notices something odd about one of the hot dog buns. It looks like half of the bun has been squashed down, unlike the other buns. The bun is rock-hard stale, and when detectives dust the squashed half of bun number three, a very clear partial footprint reveals itself. This is where the investigation goes from pretty weird to totally bizarre. The bun is now rock hard. You know how they get after a few days. In order to have made a clear footprint, the perpetrator would have had to have stepped on the bun when it was perfectly fresh and soft. That means the owner of the footprint on the bun was in the bathroom when the buns got dumped out from their bag during the crime. That person stepped on bun number three, leaving behind their footprint. Signed, sealed, delivered. Scene of the crime, time of the crime. All that has to be done now is find whoever belongs to that footprint, and they are late.
The detective uses 3D scan overlay technology on Mateo's footprint and the bunny print to establish if they are in fact identical. <laughs> These guys have a slam dunk with this evidence. Really, this is all over except for the whining. Mateo, we have your footprint. This is you at the time of our death. We have a search warrant. I searched the rest of your house. All I did was knock on her door. I'm sorry. Police put together the evidence and determined that on the evening of November 13th, Mateo went to Cecilia's house after his wife Carolyn had gone to bed. Okay. <laughs> he had a pass at her, but Cecilia wanted nothing to do with him. You have a wife, you have kids, you need to leave me alone. Here's a guy who just couldn't handle being rejected. Big man. And in his mind, she disrespected him. This enraged the tail so much that he attacked her. To most of us, that's senseless. But in his mind, it makes perfect sense. He's the man. He's in charge, right? No. Wrong. Oh, no. Mateo dragged Cecilia to the bathroom, where he slit her throat with scissors. Then, he placed her in the bathtub and ran the water, washing away any DNA evidence. And the hot dog buns. This, this is a weird one, but follow me on it. Killer needed to get rid of the bloody scissors. So he leaves him in the bathroom, he goes to the kitchen and grabs the first plastic bag he saw so he doesn't leave a trail of blood. This bag held hot dog buns. He brought him back to the bathroom, bagged his evidence so he could get out of the house. And that's how the blood got on the counter and that's how the buns got onto the floor. Some things are good to know, like where to find the cheapest gas in town and which supermarket gives you the most bang for your buck. Something else that's good to know? If you have Medicare and Medicaid, you may be able to get more health care benefits through a Humana Medicare Advantage dual eligible special needs plan. Call now and speak to a licensed Humana sales agent to see if you qualify. Depending on the plan you choose, you could have your doctor, hospital, and prescription drug coverage in one convenient plan. From Humana, a company with over 60 years of experience in the healthcare industry. You'll have lots of doctors and specialists to choose from. And if you have Medicare and Medicaid, a Humana plan may give you other important benefits. Depending on where you live, they can include coverage for dental, with two free cleanings a year, plus dentures, fillings, crowns, and more. Vision, including eye exams and eyeglasses, and hearing coverage, including killer and who isn't. I mean, on the surface, with a nine-year relationship and two kids, you'd assume this guy would have developed better impulse control. But no, never assume anything. We're fortunate that this time, this guy left behind. He got life in prison. But after two failed marriages, this 45-year-old finds herself back in the dating pool. And the water's cold. 
Damn, Thompson. When you're a woman over 40, unfortunately, most of your dating options are less Fabio and more Flabio. <sighs> this leaves many successful women with their beds empty and their bank accounts full. Targets for attractive young liars, scammers, or worse. It just isn't fair. Just when Joan's given up on finding love again, the man of her dreams walks in to her office. Hi. Hey. Clay, the chiseled John architect who's just turned 32, is starting his first day at Joan's firm. How are you settling in? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Good. Everyone's been really welcoming and, uh, you know, figuring my way around. Good. Yeah. From the moment their eyes meet, there are sparks. Stop by anytime. My door is always open to you. Okay. Yeah. To Joan, Clay seems like the man she's been searching for her entire life. Not only is he handsome, but he's charming, funny, and has a great job. I don't want to tell you your wife that you're going to be working long hours. Uh, I'm single. Um, okay, so, great. But with 13 years age difference between them, Joan's certain Clay would never be attracted to her. But Joan is wrong. Clay's interested in her, very interested. The question is... Is it for the right reasons? When Clay makes his desires known, Joan is more than receptive. Before long, the couple is inseparable. This is the first time in her life that Joan feels really loved in every possible way. In a few short months, she's gone from giving up on relationships to living the life of a romance novel heroine. And she's eating it up. So he's from the Midwest, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and where was he before he was at your firm? I'm not sure. We just haven't made that far in the conversations. But I can tell he's really, really, really good guy. And how can you tell? Not everyone is happy about the relationship, though, including Joan's best friend, Lena. This is moving way too fast. Why don't you just slow down, make sure that it's really right this time. You've heard people talk about beer goggles, but I've seen plenty of love goggles. Smart people, but they're so wrapped up in their romantic fantasies that they ignore the basic lessons we were taught as kids. Like, don't trust people until you've gotten to know them. How does that uh, Elvis song go? Only fools rush in. Despite Lena's reservations, Joan is determined to live her real-life romance novel. And in three months, she moves on to the next chapter. Mm -hmm. Of course, yes, yes. Two months later, the couple is married in a small ceremony attended by their closest friends. She forgot to do a background check. Trust his tips and tricks. Dark cloud appears over Joan's sunny new life when she notices money disappearing from her bank account. There's only two people who have access to that account. Her and her brand new husband, Clay. What is this? These are my accounts. Joan, I think so. Yeah, you better. Clay confesses to taking the money and paying child support. What? But says he only did it to support his two children from his two previous marriages. I made some bad decisions in my past, but that's what it is. It's the past. 
Jonah. And I love you. You're the one I want to be with. Jonah forgives Clay, and he swears to never betray the truth. Forgives him. I've lost count of Duh. how many times at the FBI we see kind, generous, beautiful women desperate for attention being swept away by boy toys who take them for everything they've got. I mean, if it's too good to be true, it is. In my experience, no matter how much these guys swear you can trust them, the situation almost always ends in tears. You are his wife now. Don't you think your entire relationship being based on a lie is a little bit of a problem? I don't like him, and I don't trust him, and I don't know what you don't get about that. Not everyone is as forgiving as Joan. You can't yeah. trust the guy. He lied to you. When you don't what Clay's been up to, she seizes on it as proof he's a bad guy. You don't know him like I know him. I don't have to. Actions speak louder than words, Life soon returns to normal. They get in trouble. Until it's gonna go bad. <laughs> Almost a year to the day of her wedding, Joan is struck with a sudden mysterious illness that leaves her so with bloody diarrhea and gasping for breath. By the time Clay races her to the hospital, her organs are already failing. How are you, <laughs> Clay stays by his wife's side as puzzled doctors run a battery of tests trying to determine what's happened to the normally vibrant Joan. Check for poisoning, idiot. Joan's close with her friend. I just need to see my friend alone for a few minutes. I'm sure you can understand that. Right now? Yeah, right now. Clay is hesitant. It'll be fine. But finally agrees, telling Joan he'll be right outside. Why is Clay acting so strange? What is going on? Within minutes, Clay gets antsy and decides it's time to resume his place at his wife's side. One of the signs that Mr. Wonderful might be a problem is that he needs total control over you. I think Joe needs some rest now, so you should go. Guys like Clay rely on having absolute influence over the woman they're latched onto. If you're an outsider who isn't buying to his charm and worshipping at the altar of his ego, then you're gone. With Lena ousted, Clay resumes his vigil at his wife's bedside. <coughs> Until minutes later, her vital signs crash. Help! Help! Somebody! Help my wife! Joan may have wanted to live a romance novel, but now her story's taking an unexpected twist. Great movie. Yeah. Silly ending. What? A penniless widow needs help to bury her husband? Please. Who doesn't have life insurance? Who doesn't have life insurance? Me, that's very who. appropriate no. commercial. No, life she's insurance. Great. I'm not getting yeah. any younger. And I don't want the kids saddled with all my final expenses. That's exactly People why I got coverage for murk each other all the time for the life insurance. Has to be considered a suspect. She was alone. And hemorrhoid cream. Police work is based on thorough investigation, not on hunches and in her IV bag. We need those to psychics and armchair detectives. Let me tell you, our solve rate is much, much higher than theirs. I'm wondering if either of you have seen anybody other than hospital staff in this room. No. No one. 
With no hard evidence to narrow the pool of suspects, and with Joan saying she wants to forget the whole incident, Detective Hannah Weber is forced to drop her investigation what? before it's even begun. When Joan is eventually released from the hospital, Clay attends to her every need. And once Joan's back at work, Clay, ever the doting husband, only becomes more protective. Oh yeah, Clay's right in there protecting Joan from her friends, her co-workers, the police, anyone who could challenge her rose-colored view. Thank God for Clay. Just when Joan is finally getting back to her old routine, she lands in another hospital with the same old symptoms. Vomiting, bloody diarrhea, and difficulty breathing. Once again, Clay runs to her side. Once again, her eye turns cloudy. And once again, doctors discover that she has been poisoned with medication. That narrows the suspect pool because one hospital could have a homicidal staff member going around poisoning patients. I mean, it happens, but it's rare. Two hospitals would, would be killers trying to murder the same patient with the same poison? That only happens in movies. The really bad ones. When hospital staff get in touch with Detective Weber, she knows what she has to do. I'm going to need you to step out of the room. Detective Weber bans everyone but essential staff from the room and posts officers to stand guard over Joan. Detective Weber interviews Joan alone, so she can speak freely. How are you feeling? <coughs> but Joan refuses to cooperate with the investigation. Do you know if your husband has been in this room the entire time? My husband has nothing to do with this. So Joan is clearly still drinking Clay's Kool-Aid. The investigators would be better off talking to Lena. She's not buying what Clay is selling. With the investigation once again stalled, Lena decides it's time to take matters into her own hands. Late one night, she sneaks into Clay's office. Lena discovers a series of life insurance policies, all taken out on Joan, with her husband Clay as the sole beneficiary. Come on, is anybody really surprised by this? I didn't think so. Certain she's found the proof she needs to expose Clay, Lena again confronts Joan, life insurance policies in hand. Joan is hesitant, but agrees to speak with Clay about the policies that night. Clay? Can you come here a minute? What are these? They're insurance policies. When Joan questions her husband about the policies, he claims he has to protect himself and his children in case anything ever happens to her. Protect them from what? His cash cow drying up? This guy's a real piece of... He's work. Honey, you haven't been well. What if something happened? I mean, this is what couples do. You've been talking to Lena, haven't you? The real problem, Clay says, is Lena snooping through his office. She's got it in for me. She doesn't have it in for you. Yes, she does. No, she doesn't. I've sensed it from day one. She's coming between us. You know, the only thing creepier than trying to control who your wife spends time with... I don't think you should see her anymore. ...is doing that same thing while your hands are around her neck. 
Hello. Hello is friendly. Hello is open. It's welcoming. Everything we want to be when helping people find a Medicare plan. So if you're looking See, for yours, love makes you blind, man. She kicked out her friend in favor of a fucking murderer. Send an ambulance right away. My wife's unconscious. Tips and tricks. gets more bizarre when the coroner finds an unexplained mark behind her ear. So, Clay. Detective Weber interviews prime suspect Clay. She'd mentioned earlier that day that she had some chest pains, but... But he denies having anything to do with Joan's death. I called 911 and, well, you know the rest. He claims the couple had simply enjoyed a quiet evening at home, then headed to bed together. Did Joan have any enemies who may have wanted to kill her? He suggests that Weber speak with Lena, the only person Joan fought with recently. Huh. I heard you had a fight with Joan about Clay. We had several fights. Detective Weber interviews Joan's friend. He was awful to her. He let her dry financially. Only to have her point the finger back at Clay as the one with the real motive to kill Joan. Unable to establish when Joan was poisoned, there's nothing more Detective Weber can do. And once again, the case goes cold. Lena's devastated by Joan's death. Maybe not surprised, but she's devastated. Clay? Not so much. In a matter of weeks, he sells her house and skips town. Huh. There you go. Clay moves to Los Angeles, California, where he gets a job as a graphic designer, remarries, and has a child. <laughs> but one person refuses to move on. Detective Weber. Here's my investigative rule. You can have a hush, Seven years but later. You have to let it die a natural death if evidence changes it. In this case, the only person who had real access to Joan the night of the murder was her husband, Clay. Yeah, so why can't they There's fucking arrest him? Incredible advance in technology in the last decade or so. And maybe there was enough to get the evidence to make this theory stick. Detective Weber sends out the evidence to one of the nation's leading nicotine experts. A key piece of new evidence is uncovered using methods that weren't available seven years earlier. The issue with this case has always been that law enforcement couldn't or didn't establish a timeline for the poisoning. Well, we finally got one, and that's all they need to nail that guy. Meet Martha. Martha is 75 years old and has been under original hey, Medicare for 10 years now, but she's a bit crazy. True Crime Network, Binge Fest. Hello. Thanks for seeing me again. 
Mm-hmm. I'm here because we got the toxicology report back on your wife's death, and I just, I have a couple questions based on the results. Toxicology report. Clay still claims that he and Jones spent the evening together, then went to bed. When Detective Weber asks whether anyone else came by the house that night, Clay confirms that there was more than a six-hour period where the couple was alone before John died. Bam! Clay may not know it, but he just gave himself up. You see, the nicotine expert gave a timeline. It says the poison was administered 30 minutes before Jones' death. And Clay's just said he was the only one with her at that time. See you, Clay. Clay's statement and the medical expert's time. <laughs> Motherfucker. Joan went to bed that fateful night. Her husband stayed up and prepared a lethal concoction by meticulously emptying out an entire pack of cigarettes and emulsifying the dried tobacco into a liquid substance. As for how he administered it, what, do you remember that unexplained mark behind Joan's ear? When Joan was at her most vulnerable, her supposed dream aunt gave her a deadly shot of nicotine, and then climbed into bed and waited for her to die. Wow. What that a fucking sick fuck. Like a lot. For a non-smoker like Joan, one pack would do the trick. To ensure his plan worked this time, Clay waited until Joan was too far gone to be saved before calling 911 and performing CPR. He thought acting like the perfect husband would throw police off his trail, but we know that trick. Send an ambulance right away. Just because someone helps the victim doesn't mean we stop looking at them. I mean, if anything, we look harder since they all have the access needed to kill. Why do they keep thinking they're smarter than the police? When well, investigators him, looked into Clay's past, they discovered usually that he was they are about murdering his wife. Only about 23% of murders are solved by police, so, you know, they figure they're going to get away with it. Fake too. Clay hadn't fallen for Joan, just her bank account. When her cash started to dry up, Clay took his plan to the next level. As soon as Joan was worth more to Clay dead than alive, he rewrote her story going from a sexy romance to a murder mystery. After twice failing to kill Joan with lidocaine, Clay changed the drug of his choice to nicotine and discovered that when it came to killing Joan, third time's the charm. <laughs> Certainly got off scot-free, Clay cashed in Joan's life insurance, quit his job, and left town. Rich and ready to start over. As for Lena, she was right about everything to do with Clay and had only been trying to save her friend from the clutches of a dangerous charlatan. Yeah. Here's a strange thing about human nature that you see specifically in this case. Despite continued overwhelming evidence that Clay was using and abusing her, Joan just couldn't or wouldn't see it. She Stop wanted so fucking... badly to be a romance novel heroine that she bought into the wrong man. Unbelievably bizarre, shockingly true, bizarre murders. Next. The events in this program are inspired by a true story. Names, dates, and events have been changed. Viewer discretion is advised. On this episode of Bizarre Murders, the strange things that lurk in the hearts of men and in internet chat rooms. When fantasies jump off the keyboard and into reality, you might just end up I want them to do a series of people who were going to be victims, but who ended up killing their attempted murder. That would be a great show.
right, Bizarre Murders, we're doing a true crime binge watch. Oh, there's some of my magnetic duckies. Once upon a time, in a farmhouse set in a beautiful valley of rolling hills, there lived a seemingly normal salesman, 42-year-old Gunter. He's a bachelor who resides in his childhood home alone. And from not having a partner, something else is missing from his life. A void that needs to be filled. You see, Gunter dreams of eating people. Oh, man. Actually ingesting them. This isn't it's a make-believe zombie fetish. He is an aspiring cannibal. It's a fantasy that began during his childhood. Raised by a distant father and a verbally abusive mother, Gunther's household is chaotic to say the least. Nobody knows for sure what sets Gunther on the twisted path he takes from child to adulthood. Maybe it's his father walking out on him when he was only five years old. Gunther grows up terrified of being abandoned. In his dreams, he has someone he loves and who loves him, a little brother. And they will never be apart. Because Gunter will eat him, ingest him. It's a sick take on togetherness. But Gunter takes it as kind of like snuggling. Oh. You want to snuggle with that guy? Gunter doesn't get much affection at home. Hmm. Bitter and angry, his mother treats her child as a servant and as an emotional punching bag. The problem is when somebody feels that they have no value is that they just can't go on living this way. A person needs dignity and self-respect. As an adult, Gunter joins the army. To the world, Gunter presents himself as friendly and charming while concealing a dark fantasy life. In the business, we call this a mask of sanity. For some people, acting normal is just that. And Mask of sanity. It's why people are so shocked when the quiet guy down the street who keeps to himself turns out to have a dozen skeletons in his closet. Not an analogy, a dozen real skeletons. Maybe it's the disciplined military life that keeps him on an even keel. Maybe being away from mom eases the pressure. Or maybe it's losing himself in drink. For that whole time, his fantasies continue. But he doesn't act on them. But it's harder to keep being a drunk under your hat. A couple of DUI car wrecks cost Gunter his military career. Oh, no. And sends him crawling back to... You guessed it. Oh, my God. Mommy's house. Please call me deeply. It seems that this is a turning point for our boy, Gunter. Up until now, he's been just a geeky loner weirdo. But he found a place for himself in the army. Getting booted, though, and ending up back at home where he started seemed to twist something deep inside of him. Hmm. Home. Single. Trapped him. with his abusive mother in an old house in a tiny village. His military career a failure. Gunter reinvents himself as a salesman, by day selling surgical tools. 
Oh my god. By night, trolling the internet. And then, one fine day, Gunter gets a bit of luck. This is the second turning point. Hunter is alone in a big house in a tiny village. He makes his mom's room into a shrine, like you do, and spends his empty nights searching chat rooms for people whose fantasies match his own. Now, with no one looking over his shoulder, there's nothing stopping him from making those weird fantasies come true. In the darkest corners of the internet, Gunter finds what he's been looking for, hook up and cook up. A chat room in which people share their fantasies of eating human flesh or being consumed by a ravenous stranger. Gunter's dreams come true when someone calling himself Morsel replies that he's been looking for someone who wants to eat him up. They don't just share fantasies. They talk like they're the real deal. They say things like, this. I dream that someone will eat me up, or come to my house and I'll do it. Charming, huh? In the cannibal chat room world, Gunter becomes a star. His fantasies are compelling. And the murderous he creates are tantalizingly real. When you start lifting rocks on the internet, what crawls out can take your breath away, sometimes literally. There are boatloads of would-be cannibals out there, and whole rafts of sick people who say they'd love to be But not everything you order online is actually the merchandise you would hope for. Luckily for the posers and role players, Gunther lures into his home. No. He's no Hannibal Lecter. He only wants to dine on someone who's into it, too. And wants to be eaten. <laughs> yeah, I heard about this story. This was in Deutschland, yeah. Or toasting is also the main course. of men. These days, it's anybody with a Wi-Fi connection. But crawling into those holes can be very disturbing. So be careful where you go and what you look for. Weird behaviors are frequently just normal ones taken to a bizarre extreme. Dieter wants to bring pleasure and to be close to someone. That's normal. He thinks the way to do that is to offer himself up as a meal. That's as far from normal as you can get. Oh my god. Gunter and Dieter make a plan to turn their fantasy into a reality. Gunter has no clue how to go about slaughtering a human being, but he sets out to create the scenario he's got in his head, starting with a place to deal with Dieter's body. 
So now we're getting to the point where people usually say, hey, let's talk about our fantasies, fool around, and then watch a movie. If your partner is too enthusiastic, you say your safe word and bail out. At least that's what I've heard. But Peter makes things very clear. He wants to be eaten, and it's dinner time now. I just don't think this is working. <laughs> too personal here, but some people can be very particular about their fantasies. Dieter had envisioned things going a little differently. For one thing, he figured on better anesthetic and cheap dessert and schnapps. Life's full of disappointments. Drink some Painkillers or no, Dieter is determined, and the disappointment of returning home uneaten is more than he can bear. <laughs> or magic nighty-nighty cold gloop you've got in your system. The pain must be unimaginable. But obsessions have their own power, and Peter is desperate to be consumed, to be erased. Even though Dieter is becoming cheap from all the bleeding, Gunter doesn't want their dream date to end so soon. He's eager to please his dinner companion. Maybe if you need to quit, yes, he would some garlic. Even now, even mutilated, Dieter could have survived. But he makes Gunter promise not to call an ambulance. That, my friends, is commitment. I believe this turns out that since it was consensual, 
that he didn't get charged for homicides or something like that. Though despite being determined, both are amateurs. It turns out that being emasculated by a curious cannibal wannabe is not a ticket to a painless death nor a quick death. Who knew? Morning finds Dieter still alive, but he's too weak to participate anymore in his self-slaughter. He makes Gunter promise not to limp out and call an ambulance. <laughs> or so, so Gunter says. satisfied, Gunther savors every moment of the experience of taking Dieter apart, oh wrapping up the meat, <laughs> and stowing him in the freezer. It's a telltale sign of serial killers that their murders become a kind of ceremony or a ritual. Out of respect for Dieter, he lays out his best china and opens his finest Brunello. Post, dear Dieter, you are as delicious as you are. It's not that no one was looking for Dieter or that they didn't care. His partner missed him terribly and called in the police when he didn't return from the conference he was supposedly attending. Dieter did a good job of covering his tracks. He's wiped his hard drive. He paid cash for his train ticket. It Gay. was his heart's desire to just Gay vanish. Thing too. And that's what he's done. As for Gunter, no one suspects him of anything. Dieter was a stranger. If Gunter keeps his head low, nothing's going to stop him from killing again. While Dieter's lover searches in vain, Gunter slowly works his way through his freezer load of Dieter steaks and schnitzels. He gets to about a pound a week. It's only a few months before Gunther starts feeling the need for some variety in his diet. He tells his hookup and cook-up chat room pals that now he's a real cannibal. He uses the details of what he did to Dieter to impress prospective entrees. Now Gunther has made what polite people like you and me call bad choices. Going online, talking about eating people, not the best choice. Actually eating somebody. Very bad choice. Bragging online about eating people? That's how you attract attention for sure. Maybe more attention than you want. In the chat rooms he haunts, Gunter meets a lot of thrill-seeking posers who type a good game. But they ghost him when he offers the chance to actually be turned into a blue plate special. Sadly for Gunter, his search is looking fruitless. Until he gets a bite that seems too good to be true. Felix is a 25-year-old law student living in Austria. After some chatting, Felix seems to be exactly what Gunter's been looking for. He's young, he's slender and fit. Gunter is drooling with desire. Hello, Felix. I would love to meet you. It 
tasty meal of your delicious flesh. I can prove it to you. Gunter sends details to prove that he's ready to take Felix from farm to table in comfort and style. It's the Medicare annual enrollment period when you find out if your Medicare Advantage plan will change coverage and benefits to all of next year. A 25-year-old Austrian law student who he thinks will be more tense than the tough meat he got from Dieter. There's only one problem. Felix is not interested in actually being made into bratwurst. He's just playing a weird game. And once he coaxes enough out of Gunter to convince himself he's really chatting with a killer cannibal, he calls the cops. Gunter's given enough away in his chats for the police to figure out who he is. The investigators can't tell for sure if the graphic images Gunter's posted online are real or just skillful amateur horror filmmaking. As for Gunter, he's confident he's done nothing wrong. Let's have a seat. takes the frozen remains and has them tested in a lab. But most incriminating is the six hours of gruesome video documenting the bloody dinner party that Gunter and Dieter had the night the butchery began. The meat is human. Dieter is identified. The secret world of cannibals who find their prey online is both shocking and horrifying to the public. Gunter is found guilty of murder and is currently serving a life sentence without possibility of parole. He says there's lots of would-be cannibals in the world and he advises them to find a better hobby. Coaching soccer, building model boats, train spotting. Well, one more thing, Gunter's a vegetarian now. He never eats anything that can talk back. I'm just glad I wasn't the detective who had to investigate this. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Shana's illnesses have left her wheelchair bound, and her mother has sacrificed everything to help her. But when Donna encounters evil at the hands of a stranger, and her daughter goes missing, police race against time to save them and uncover a hidden secret.
small town. Lana is concerned about her neighbors. 46-year-old Donna. And her severely handicapped teenage daughter, Shayna. Lana is worried because bizarre messages were posted on Donna's social media page earlier that day. From an investigator's point of view, you are paying attention to the difference in tone from the previous posts. Does it sound like a sweet, loving, single mother who has selflessly raised her sickly, handicapped daughter? Or does it sound more like the writings of a deranged killer? My vote is for number two. Lana drops by to see what's going on. We've got a dead body here. No murder weapon at this time. No signs of forced entry. Send back up. When you don't see any evidence of forced entry, you can often conclude that the victim knew their killer. It happens more often than we'd like to think. An unsuspecting person opens the door to their trusted friend or relative, and the murderer waltzes right in. Game over. Police do a sweep of the entire house. The good news? The killer is gone. The bad news, so is Shayna. Shayna is confined to a wheelchair and can only travel with her mother's assistance. Everything points to a kidnapping. Imagine the situation the police have on their hands. It stands to reason that the killer has taken Shayna. So somewhere out there, there's a severely disabled teenager whose chances of survival are slim. During my time with the FBI, I learned the hard way that if you don't find the victim of an abduction within the first 48 hours, it gets pretty grim, and it gets that way fast. There's a ticking clock, and it started hours ago. Police interviewed Donna's neighbor, Lana. She tells them that Shana has been having a romance with a man she met online. His name is Robbie, and he's a 32-year-old resident of Utah. Now we're getting somewhere. Whenever you've got a missing woman, the first place you look is her husband or boyfriend. 85% of the time, if they haven't done the deed themselves, then they've masterminded it. And I use the term mastermind kind of lightly. Using Robbie's social media account, where he has helpfully posted his address, the police are able to track him down to Salt Lake City, Utah. Really? Posting your address on your social media account? Oh, come on. 
That has to take the cake for one of the stupidest things anyone can do, much less a potential criminal who police are looking for. They come prepared for a violent confrontation with a suspected brutal killer. Sorry, I was just in the bathroom. Come in. Who's there? Instead of finding a sickly disabled Shayna, possibly tied and bound, Shayna, the police find an able-bodied, healthy young woman. Shayna is obviously not kidnapped, nor is she disabled. Someone's got some serious explaining to do. Shayna and Robbie admit they've been having a secret long-distance love affair. The investigation has taken a bizarre and completely unexpected turn. So now the investigators have to switch lanes, throw their original assumptions out the window, and follow the breadcrumbs. And in this case, it's not a straight line. Shane, I've got to tell you, your mother's dead. What? She was murdered. No. I'm sorry. No. What? I'm sorry, but I have to ask you if you know anything. Shayna claims to have no idea who would want to hurt her mother. Everyone loved her. Shayna, I was under the impression that you were sick, even in a wheelchair. Shayna tells an astonishing tale. A heart attack? He was 47. What about Janice and the kids? Do they have life insurance? No. But we have life insurance. John, we agreed you were going to take care of that. I'm trying to find something we can afford. Call Select Quote now and get the insurance your family needs at a price you can afford. In minutes, Select Quote found John a $500,000 policy for only $29 a month and his wife Anne a $500,000 policy for these, only $21 these health, a month. These at life Select insurance Quote, ads are probably giving people ideas. Insurance companies in America to find you the best True crime network bitches cause y'all need to know that people can For be real fucking psychos Even her age had been a lie. Most people thought Shayna was 18. In reality, she's 26. <laughs> Mother-daughter relationships are complicated at the best of times, but this takes it to a whole new level. You've got a mother who has somehow made her daughter believe all of her life that she's been sick. And you thought your mom was tough on you? It's pretty much the wackiest case this cop has ever heard. Was Shayna truly a victim? Or a willing accomplice? Sometimes criminals hide in plain sight, which can make them even more difficult to catch. And this is especially true of fraudsters like Donna. They fit seamlessly into society. And if you show them a vulnerability, they'll play you. Who was Donna? And how did she get away with this brazen fraud for so long? Born and raised in Texas, 
Delilah grew up with an abusive father. She had Shayna when she was only 21 years old and worked as an office cleaner to make ends meet. When Hurricane Ike hits and she loses everything, she packs up and moves north to Cheyenne, Wyoming for a fresh start. I've been taking care of her all her life. I'm her mother and I know what's best. She needs the surgery. From the moment she was born, Donna claimed her daughter suffered from numerous ailments. They traveled from clinic to clinic, with Donna browbeating medical experts to provide the diagnosis she wants for Shayna. If one doctor doubts her claims or produces negative test results, I'm going to get a second opinion. She simply goes to another. Shayna endures many unnecessary surgeries and even has a feeding tube inserted into her stomach. This allows Donna ultimate control. She can monitor what Shayna eats and can administer whatever drug she wants her to take. Donna treats Shayna as though she's many years younger than she really is. She withdraws her from school, telling everyone she is stuck with the mental capacity of a seven-year-old. By the time she's a young teen, Shayna doesn't even know her true age. <laughs> Shayna is, in effect, brainwashed to believe she's an incurable invalid. So the next time you think you've got problems with your own mother, think again. Here's your check. The public eats up the story of a single mom with a severely disabled daughter. I'd just like to thank you. It's been such a difficult time for me. Us. And we really appreciate all the love that, that has gone into assisting Shayna. Being a single mom is hard, but with all the help from everyone, we really appreciate it. Don't you? Donna benefits from social assistance and donations. This woman makes Joan Crawford look like a saint. Not only is she making her daughter ill, but she's making a quick and easy buck at the same time. What no one knows is that Donna is exhibiting classic signs of a rare and highly disturbing condition. It's going to be so helpful to us, isn't it, Shana? Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a disorder in which a spouse or a caregiver fabricates illness in their partner or child. So let me spell it out for you non-believers. Basically, your loved one isn't killing you. They're simply making you sick so that they can get attention. I would do anything for my daughter. It's a controversial concept and not universally accepted by mental health experts. So as an investigator, you've got to wonder, is it deliberate abuse or something that the instigator can't help? Is it a real illness or a way of rationalizing appalling behavior? In my 25 years of law enforcement, I've seen strange motives. But making your daughter believe she's dying so you can get attention, 
Well, that pushes the crazy meter full tilt. The cash cow. Shayna is forced into a life of deception until one day she makes a glorious discovery. The internet. Shayna discovers there's a whole world out there beyond the prison her mother has created for her. And she's determined to explore it. Up until now, Shayna isn't a typical teen. But deprive them of candy and they'll want candy. Deprive them of a social life, and you get the picture. If you're looking for a Medicare plan, it helps to have the facts. That's why we're talking with you today about Humana Medicare Advantage plans. Let's see how a Humana Medicare Advantage prescription drug plan compares to original Medicare and Medicare supplement plans. Let's start with doctor office visits, something most of us use at least a couple of times a year. With original Medicare, you not only have to meet a deductible, but for many services, you also have to pay 20% of the Medicare-approved doctor's fee. A Medicare supplement plan covers those costs, but there is no prescription drug coverage, and you may pay a higher monthly premium. But with a Humana Medicare Advantage plan, coverage is often included with typically a low or even no copayment. Now, what about prescription drugs? With original Medicare, you have to pay extra for a Part D prescription drug plan. The same holds true for Medicare supplement plans. You have to purchase a separate Part D prescription plan. But with most Humana Medicare Advantage plans, you don't need a separate drug plan. These are all-in-one plans that include prescription coverage for both generic and brand-name drugs. Many plans offer Tier 1 prescriptions with no co-pays or deductibles at in-network retail pharmacies. What it comes down to is this. You can purchase a separate prescription drug plan that covers nothing but prescription drugs, add an additional premium, or you can sign up for an all-in-one Humana Medicare Advantage plan that already has prescription drug coverage built in. Many of our Humana Medicare Advantage plans include coverage for vision and hearing and dental coverage that includes two free cleanings a year plus dentures, crowns, fillings, and more. As well as an allowance for over-the-counter health products to help pay for everyday essentials that you might normally get at the drugstore or pharmacy. Things like vitamins, pain relievers, and more. If you have Medicare and Medicaid, you may even qualify for a dual eligible special needs plan with extra benefits like rides to and from your doctor and a card to help you pay for groceries every month. You may be able to get a Humana Medicare Advantage plan with a $0 monthly plan premium that includes extra benefits and more coverage than original Medicare for the same premium. To find out if you could save on prescription drugs, to see if your doctor is in our network, and to see if a $0 premium plan is available in your area, call the number on your screen now. After all you've done and all you've contributed, you deserve a great Medicare plan from a company that cares about your total well-being. Pick up the phone and talk to a local licensed Humana sales agent today, or visit our website and learn about plans available in your area. See if a Humana Medicare Advantage plan could save you money. Humana, a more human way to help you. Unbelievably bizarre. A rattlesnake is a murder weapon? Yet shockingly true. Seriously, that actually happened. Uncover the twists and turns behind the strangest crimes. Bizarre murders. Next on True Crime Network. 
Shayna becomes quickly obsessed with the new opportunities presented. Shayna sets up three secret social media accounts and communicates with people at night when Donna is asleep. And by people, I mean boys. And by boys, I mean men. Shayna's first attempt at independence takes place at a comic book convention. A rare treat from Donna for her sick daughter. Shayna takes the first chance she can get and ducks out of Donna's view. She wanted to kill her mother. 
and run for the hills. But then again, luck can cause people to throw caution to the wind. If I were to venture a guess, I'd say the fantasy world Shana has created has crossed over from fantasy to delusion. And she's looking for someone to do her bidding. is very rare. It's even more rare for a daughter to be involved in killing her mother. But Shana is Don't caught in a perfect storm. In. She lives an isolated life point. and she has an unwavering belief that there is no other way out. Once Donna is dead, Shana takes $3,000 of her mother's Inspector, money with heads to his home in Salt Lake City where she's ultimately arrested. The people of Cheyenne are utterly shocked. There, on the evening news, is Shana. Her hands are cuffed behind her back. 
But more shocking than the murder charge <laughs> is the fact that she's walking. <laughs> Although the murder appears premeditated, given the unique nature of her circumstance, Shayna is allowed to plead guilty to second-degree murder. She's sentenced to 15 years in prison. Some are convinced Shayna's intent was pure evil. Others see Shayna as a brainwashed victim who made a desperate bid to free herself from her monstrous mother. Mother-daughter relationships can be difficult to navigate, and her daughter killing her own mother can be hard to understand. But maybe Shayna inherited more from her mother than she realized when she entered this made-up fantasy world. She simply played her part in the fairy tale and rid the world of Trump the villain. Trump reads nothing but Hitler's hatred, exclamation point. Pass it on. is advised on this episode of bizarre murders jorge and miguel are famous wrestlers who also happen to be twin brothers and little people these two larger than life personalities give new meaning to the expression sex drugs and rock and roll but when one night goes too far jorge and miguel the ultimate fight of their lives. since birth. Unusually energetic, they grow up wrestling each other in their tiny, rundown home. Their father is not part of the equation, and their single mother has a tough time making ends meet. Without a television, they escape reality by listening to their older brother Guillermo's tales of the Mexican wrestling world. Guillermo is a pro wrestler who encourages his little brothers to join in on the fun. When they're teenagers, Guillermo sets the twins up with their first gig. They are billed as Los Jamelos Locos, the crazy twins. Jorge and Miguel are brash and wild, and at four foot eight inches tall, Message times two, for the they put on quite the show. Department of Justice. In 1992, they adopt their adult wrestling identities: Hombre Salvaje and Cobra Voladora. And it doesn't take the tiny twins long to rise to the top of the Mexican wrestling scene. Jorge and Miguel are rock stars in the Mexican wrestling world. In all my years in the FBI, I've seen what can happen when fame puts you in a phone Nelson. You can easily end up with three lifelong opponents. Sex, drugs, 
and booze. Over the next several years, the twins divorce their wives and deal with a different kind of wrestling. This time, the opponent is their growing alcohol and drug addictions. Hey America! Exclamation point! Stop putting up. After with... a big televised match against El Castigador, the twins are ready to celebrate. Crappy elected officials! Uh, exclamation point! Go home isn't just a saying; it's a way of life. In the short time that Fernando Nazis drinks at El Pitre Hotel, he's seen his fair share of louts. But these two, these two are especial. Amigos. You think you can keep it down a bit? Huh? But when he asks them to tone it down, it falls on deaf ears. Wrestlers. Except the belt, man. Yeah. Two years running. Sure, there's a certain thrill USA in has in a dark, dingy medical bar. care of but in my third world come a shithole country. Exclamation point. It was this case where a guy was gagged. Do something about it. Exclamation point. Junk duct tapes tight to his body. That when the medics finally got it off, he wasn't ever able to, well, do it again. Stranger danger is what we like to say in the FBI. The ladies make it known that they are prostitutes, and that El Cutre Hotel is their office and place of business. And for a handful of pesos, we'll rock Jorge and Miguel's worlds. The twins and their newfound friends decide to take their cocktails up to the room for a nightcap, or guro de dormir, as they say in Mexico. But it doesn't take long before the party turns into a coke-fueled bender. Just because Jorge and Miguel aren't able to actually receive the services that were agreed upon doesn't mean that these pros aren't getting paid, because that's how it works in this world. Hmm. Rob them. <laughs> that's what you do. That's what you get for... The morning after, a cleaning woman from the hotel is doing her rounds and arrives at Jorge and Miguel's room. It's well after their checkout time. She tries to wake the twin wrestlers, but when they don't respond, she becomes concerned. For such small guys, Jorge and Miguel want to watch that voracious appetite of theirs. Everybody's got to pay the piper at some point. too much body fat, it tends to accumulate on your stomach, hips, and thighs. Are you struggling to lose weight? 
Does it seem like no matter what you do, you just can't get rid of excess body fat? Body fat builds over our midsection. Body fat increases with lack of exercise and poor diet. The Obesity Research Institute has found a solution. It's called Lipozine. Lipozine is clinically proven to help reduce your body fat and weight. And to raise awareness about this weight loss breakthrough, the company is letting people try Lipozine risk-free for 30 days. Now you can lose four times more weight. Just add Lipozine for only $29.95. Call right now and we'll double your order for free and ship it free too. And for a limited time, we'll double the size of each bottle for free so once the police arrive on the scene both jorge and miguel are officially declared deceased the question the authorities immediately ask was there foul play involved but with no signs of forced entry and no signs of assault on the bodies they can't ascertain the twin wrestlers cause of death When police search the room, they discover the wrestlers have been robbed. The twins are celebrities in the Mexican wrestling world, and their hardcore partying is well known. Could they have been the target of a robbery gone wrong? Mm -hmm. To listen on what happened, I was just coming in to clean the room like I normally do, um, and I knocked on the door. Well, they wait for the results from the autopsies on Jorge and Miguel. Detectives question the cleaning woman who discovered Jorge and Miguel's dead bodies. I'm not surprised that they're grilling the cleaner. I mean, I do the same. Because you wouldn't believe how many times that the person who finds the dead body is really the person who put it there. But Guadalupe the maid has a solid alibi for the previous night. She was at the quinceanera of her 16-year-old niece. The police then turn their attention to the hotel staff working the night before. They're especially interested in a woman who was working at the front desk, Yolanda. So who called into the scene? Uh, that was one of the housekeepers that I have on staff. Yolanda tells the police that she remembers the men. Whoa, big surprise. Who wouldn't remember two guys with Lucha Daughter masks in a bar? I mean, really. She insists that she made no contact whatsoever with Jorge and Miguel. But she says that the bartender Fernando complained to her after a shift about these two obnoxious hombres pequeños who he'd like to smack around real bueno. So, Fernando, you know why you're here. The detectives move their focus to the bartender who served Jorge and Miguel the night before. They want to hear about their interaction and what it was about the brothers that rubbed him the wrong way. Anything else besides alcohol? No, nothing. But when asked if he served anything other than alcohol to the little people, <laughs> Fernando flies off the handle and gets very defensive. I didn't do anything. Nothing. So here you've got this hot-headed hombre who is not only super pissed off with the little guys, but had access to what they were drinking all night, and now... They're both dead with no visible signs of assault. And what the hell's Fernando thinking acting like this with the cops? Now they're going to make him their suspect numero uno. The twin wrestlers' autopsy results.